Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. The New Testament is focused on achieving peace. I'm going to read a series of scriptures that make this point. This peace is inclusive, certainly, of a physical nonviolence, but of course it's also a corporate peace that we have peace in the body of Christ. It's a psychological peace that we have peace within ourselves. We're no longer at war with ourselves. And achieving this peace, I think, is not a simple thing. It's not something we just do and, and we're finished with it. But rather the history of the church and our own history is to cultivate this peace. And so I just want to make two points, that peace is the goal, and achieving this peace is what we are to concentrate upon, and what we are to cultivate in our lives. But first, let me just read a series of scriptures. The scriptures make the point that peace is thematic. Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, there's personal peace, peace within, as members of one body, corporate peace, you were called to peace. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Peace with our brothers and sisters, peace with the world. 1 Peter 3.9-11 says a similar thing. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. What we see in this passage is that Peace is actually something that we can speak. It's spoken. We're on our Thursday morning book club. We're actually reading how to do this, how to speak peacefully. And often the opposite of peace is connected with deceit, as in this passage. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. Maybe the most, most famous passage, Matthew 5, 9 Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. That's the thing that identifies us as the children of God. Last one, because of the tender mercy, Luke 1, 78-79. The tender mercy of God, whereby the sun rise shall visit from on high and give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. That is, even in the midst of death, even in the midst of life suffering, we can have peace. We could multiply this. In other words, we could just keep reading many, many passages. But two things are clear from the teaching of the New Testament and the early church prior to Constantine. Number one, Christians were forbidden to participate in violence of any kind in professions of violence, whether it was in the military, and two, they were to be about the business of peace in their personal lives, financially, personally, and in their corporate lives. That's the first point. Point two, violence is such a pervasive and deeply rooted problem 
that even among those who are nonviolent in the patristic period, they did not recognize the very violence in which they were involved. And I'll give you a couple examples here in a minute. There is the problem, we can see this in the New Testament, of strife in the New Testament churches. That is, they know they want to be at peace, but conflict, whether it's psychological, whether it's social conflict, or the ideas of slavery, the treatment of women, treatment of Gentiles. We see this even in the New Testament, that they're struggling to enact peace, to not be violent. In the New Testament itself, we do not encounter a fully worked out peace. The same thing is true in the early churches subsequent to the New Testament period. So I'm going to quote a series of people. They're all prior to 400 AD, that is before Constantine. Tertullian, he forbids any form of participation in violence for Christians. He says, how will a Christian man war? Nay, how will he serve even in peace without a sword which the Lord has taken away? A Christian must not bear the sword, he says, in any circumstance, because, quote, in disarming Peter, he unbelted every soldier. Yet Tertullian could also, in other words, he's nonviolent. He says we're seeking peace. He could revel in the potential delights, this is Tertullian also, of watching his enemies suffer. He pictures, oh, when we're up in paradise, one of the pleasures we will enjoy is seeing our enemies suffering in pain. That's not very peaceable. But he did not seem to recognize that that is a form of violence. That is, he rejected violence. He understood violence is no longer part of the Christian life. But what I'm saying is he didn't understand that his own projection onto God was violent. He was blind to the violence that he still harbored in himself. And I'm saying this because it's a warning to us, isn't it? There's no confusion that we're to be peaceable, that we're to get rid of violence. But our problem is that we're blind to it. And this is true in the, the first three centuries of Christianity. We get from Origen. He says, Christians could never slay their enemies, for the more that kings, rulers, and peoples have persecuted them everywhere, the more Christians have increased in number and grown in strength. That is, what is Origen saying? Well, Christians are persecuted, but they don't slay their enemies. They don't rise up. In fact, they lay down their lives. Lactantius says, wherever arms have glittered, they must be banished and exterminated from thence. Justin Martyr, and Justin Martyr is making a case to the emperor. The emperor Antonius Pius said, well, the Christians are subversive. We need to subdue Christianity. And so Justin Martyr writes and says, explain to the emperor, Christians could never be guilty of sedition as the Christian notion is a kingdom of peace. And he says this fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 2.4 in which people will, quote, beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. That is, this is now. We're already doing this, Justin Martyr says. Citizenship in God's kingdom 
he told the emperor, is a present tense reality. Quote, that it is so coming to pass, let me convince you, we who once murdered each other indeed no longer wage war against our enemies. Moreover, soever as not to bear false witness before our interrogators, we cheerfully die confessing Christ. We will not take up arms. We will not. We are not seditious. And there is this unequivocal stand against violence in the early church. So, there is no problem in determining. Violence is not acceptable, period. The problem, though, is determining what constitutes violence. And so one of the issues Tertullian deals with, a man who maybe had just recently converted to Christianity, and he was a soldier in the Roman army. And the Roman army wanted to award him a laurel crown, a crown of leaves. And because the man had become a Christian, or because his job in the army perhaps did not involve any kind of violence, he refused the laurel crown. The Roman army said, well, you can do that, but we're going to kill you. That's your choice. Either accept our honor or reject it and die. Tertullian said he did the right thing in rejecting it and dying a martyr's death. Now we could argue it. I don't know what was right or wrong there. Is it violent to accept the laurel crown? But the point is that Tertullian said that even to have a vague association with any form of violence is wrong. We cannot participate in violence. And to be associated with such things is beyond the pale for Christians. Whatever you think about that particular case, the point is that everybody rejected violence. They were negotiating, though, what constitutes violence. And so the conflict is not, oh, can we be pro-violence as Christians? No, we're, we're peaceable. And that's how we follow Jesus. Tertullian's opponents, they were afraid that if the Christians were this picky about it, that they would all be martyred. Tertullian says, we have rejected, you have rejected rather, the prophecies of the Holy Spirit. You're already turning your back on the scriptures. And in all of this, he suggests you're cowards. You're not willing to lay down your life. In peace, he says, you're lions, but in the fight, you're mere deer. So the first Christians recognized shedding blood, no matter the circumstance, is sin, period. Even vague association with violence is wrong. But what they did not recognize is the degrees or the extent that violence might extend. Let me give you an example. Origen, who's anti-violence. He's giving an illustration of the discipline of God. And he says, well, the discipline of God, isn't that like when we beat one of our slaves to make them improve? What he did not seem to recognize is, well, probably beating your slave <laughs> is not a good depiction of the character of God. He did not see the violence in it. The church accepted forms of violence not because they recognized that it was violent, but because they could not recognize they were blind, in a sense, to the violence of slavery, the violence of the treatment of women. And so this is the task of Christians. 
I think. This is our task. We're, we're to be peaceable, right? We all would agree. I would hope that no one would say, oh, it's okay to beat your slave. We can all agree. No, that's incongruent with our, our faith. But it also suggests that we too might have areas that we're blind. We can read this and say, oh, they're completely blind to their participation in violence. And so, yes, we need to recognize this. There, you know, this is John Howard Yoder. He says, we are not going to reinstate the original church of the New Testament without getting beyond Constantine. And of course, Constantine is the point at which the state and the church are fused so that we get for the first time Christian soldiers. I mean, there had been Christian soldiers, but as Constantine became Christian, it became the official religion of the state. And so there is the sense that Christianity then became involved in nationalism, in national pride and violence. Prior to the failure of Constantinian Christianity, there is no involvement consciously. But what I'm saying is that even before Constantine, what we encounter is not a completely perfect pacifism, a completely worked out understanding. Now that's no license to read a kind of Constantinian violence into the first church. But what it says to us is that overcoming violence is not an easy task, even for those who recognize that's what we're supposed to do. And so the hard stance against violence in the early church in part explains the Gnostic temptation. The temptation is to concede the physical realm to the kingdom of this world. You understand that's what's happening at this point. Oh, we have two kingdoms. And in one kingdom we can use political manipulation. We can use unethical procedures. We can do all sorts of things in one kingdom, but that doesn't affect the other kingdom. That is kind of the Gnostic temptation, is to read Christianity as simply otherworldly, of not striking back, of not offering resistance. It's a, a temptation to concede to the logic of violence. And part of this is the threat of martyrdom. This is one of the early church fathers, Tatian, recognized. And Tatian is the disciple of Justin Martyr. We're talking, you know, second century. He says, I do not wish to be a king. I am not anxious to be rich. I decline military command. I must die to the world, repudiating the madness that is in it. So Tatian recognizes the death to the world that Christ requires. The problem was when his master died, Justin Martyr dies, he couldn't do it. And it's Tatian that is one of the first early apostate Christians who joins the Gnostic cult of Valentinianism. Dying to the world, being nonviolent, being peaceable, is a continual process. It's a hard process. And if we're not experiencing the difficulty, it may be because we don't recognize that's what we're to be about. So this entails several implications. First of all, I don't believe there is a golden age in which the Christian tradition is adequate. 
in which the kingdom of God is a fully worked out reality. Clearly the Constantinian compromise. We're still enmeshed in it, right? We still have the problem of the mixing of nationalism with Christianity and we're still involved in that. Restoration or return to the practices and understanding of the first Christians, that in itself partly is a goal, but it's an inadequate goal as if that would be enough. Salvation as return, salvation as restoration. In a way it's a kind of sub-Christian notion. Conversion is not a singular moment. It's a wonderful thing, but it's a thing that continues or is supposed to continue. It's a process throughout our life. We're to continue to cultivate the conversion of our reality into a Christian understanding. And so progress in conversion, in passage from, you know, the way we talk about, I was blind, but now I see. And we're to continue to be able to see more clearly. And this discernment consists of several layers. You know, it's objective and it's subjective. It's personal and it's social. It requires a concentrated self-effort and reflection. It's not enough to be passive in this, but we need to be actively realizing this. We need to be continuing our development of our capacities to see. But what is it precisely that one sees? You know, when we say, I was blind, but now I see. Can you say exactly what that means? What are the constituent pillars of blindness? I think certainly it converges with violence, dependence on oppression. It is a dynamic of darkness, and I think we can describe that. We can name the violence, and we can cultivate the discernment of light. We can expand peaceableness in our personal lives and in our social lives. This is Paul's example. What was Paul converted from? Well, it's quite obvious. He believed in a God that sent him to kill Christians. Is there something wrong? Well, that's blindness, right? And he's converted to belief in the Father of Christ, which will prompt him not to kill others, but to lay down his life for others. There it is. Instead of putting others on crosses, you take up the cross. And so the sinful orientation to the law, it always posits a kind of punishing authority. Paul presumed to enact that punishing authority. He was going to be the force behind the law. He thought that that would hold out the possibility of gaining, you know, working his way. I think that's just not Paul, that's just every cult. When Faith goes shopping, and she doesn't shop very often, but when she goes shopping, I, I go to the bookstore, and I figure, okay, this is my opportunity to read something that I'm really not going to ever read again. All right? I, I have all these books. Now, you're going to think my, my choice here is, is strange. Uh, you know, I'd like to find out more about Charles Manson. <laughs> and so there's a new book out on Charles Manson and on the, you know, the Manson cult. I think you could take what Charlie Manson taught his followers. 
That is, I'm just saying this is universal. It's always the same thing. Charlie Manson, he's nearly illiterate. He spent most of his life in prison. You know, half his life at that point, he had been in federal institutions. But you can take what he taught, and it sounds just like early Gnosticism. He says, well, time does not exist. There is no good and evil. Death is not real. All human beings are God and the devil at the same time. And all are part of the other. That is, it's a kind of Eastern Gnostic understanding. He says, the universe is one and all that is. Now, I think Charlie had been studying Scientology, you know, in prison. We know he had been exposed to other things. Actually, he had been exposed to how to win friends and influence people, which he did for evil. One of his followers, the guy who actually carried out the killings, was a guy named Tex Watson. Tex Watson had been the captain of his football team. All-American boy, right? Good boy. Until he met Charlie. And he said, well, Charlie explained to us that it's okay to kill people because human life is worthless. And to kill someone is the equivalent, and I'm quoting Tex Watson, it's the equivalent of breaking off a minute piece of some cosmic cookie. Death is to be embraced because, he says, it exposes the soul to the oneness of the universe. Charlie's pretty clever, but he's also given him LSD, right? That helps in his mind-washing techniques. He does all sorts of things, and this is part of the strangeness of the Manson cult. Because he creates these people, literally, that will do whatever he tells them. He just randomly said, oh, go kill these people. How did he do this? We don't know exactly, but this is part of the teaching that was with it. He creates kind of automatons that go out and kill nine people. Cult, nation state, run-of-the-mill neurosis. I think it's always going to serve up the same violent necessity. An oppressive depiction of God, of reality, and a fundamental incapacity. Now what was wrong with Charlie Manson's followers? They just couldn't discern right and wrong. They couldn't understand love. They couldn't discern the beauty of life. That's not simply his followers. We could say the same thing about Paul. There's a kind of inverse relationship between what Paul, or anyone I think, is converted from to what they're converted to in Christ. And the difference is that the death, the refinements of death, employing evil, it always looks the same. All the cults begin to look the same. There's no art there's no refinement of sensibilities, no cultivation of discernment. This is Charlie Manson's phrase. He says that we learn to be mechanical. And that's what he did. He created a bunch of mechanical, what he called, he said, I'm a mechanical boy. The Swami on his bed of nails, the Buddhist monk transformed into a statue. The soldier trained to stifle his humanity. The neurotic compulsively bound by repetition. Or the Pharisee set to destroy his enemies. It always describes people who are hemmed in by death. We can see that. Now I think it's actually more difficult to describe how we subscribe, how we cultivate life, 
peace, love. Not because these things are less tangible, but because they're of an infinite breadth. Knowing and loving others and the capacity to appreciate their value. We come to be able to judge ourselves, to escape the law as a kind of given circumstance. And so the New Testament, it does, you know, two of the Jesus parables, the parable of the pearl of great price, the parable of a treasure hidden in a field. Think about it. You know, if you would show me a pearl, I don't know cheap junk jewelry, a fake pearl, from a real pearl. I honestly couldn't tell you. But somebody who knows pearls and is a pearl merchant, they have a refined sensibility. They have a cultivated understanding. They have a deep insight into what is valuable. Isn't that what Jesus is telling us? That as Christians, we cultivate that discernment. We're to be about becoming insightful into what is most valuable in life. We perceive the kingdom maybe where other people don't perceive it. And we develop a perspective in which the subtleties of pearls, of hidden treasures of the kingdom of God are exposed to us. Now I think the primary difference between peace, love, these are substantial realities. And we obtain these as treasures. You know, everybody's in pursuit of treasure, right? It's just that some people can't perceive what's valuable, where the true treasure lies. They dig in all the wrong places. But I think love, joy, peace, this is a substantive, prime reality. And so the contrast, I think, that is evil is there's no substance there. There's always the promise of something that never arrives. And the contrast with blindness, that blindness gives no substantive, or we're not saying, oh, there's some substance in evil or something to be gained. No, that's part of the lie. There's nothing there. There's no treasure to be found. But we're to develop a perception, sensibilities, discernment, into an alternative understanding. I'll close with a movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm not recommending the movie. But it's a Quentin Tarantino movie. Maybe it's with the moral sensibility that I'm talking about that we can appreciate what he's done in his movie. He takes the story of the Manson family and he changes the history. Instead of wiping out the innocent goodness of the world, represented, I think, in reality, and at least in his movie, by Sharon Tate. She was an innocent young girl, childlike. I think this is what Quentin Tarantino is doing, is reimagining a universe in which the good turns out to be the more enduring reality a perception, sensibilities, discernment into an alternative understanding that the evil will in some way be undone and will have not turned out to be the end of the story at all. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton. 
or by donating at forgingplowshares.org donate.